Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Kevin Griffin. Kevin is a longtime meditation teacher and best known as the author of One Breath at a Time. He also has a daily reader that I'm really enjoying called Buddhism and the 12 Steps. You can learn more about Kevin and his work at kevingriffin.net. In the conversation, we discuss the search for wisdom, the wisdom of not knowing, the root of suffering, sitting quietly, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Kevin Griffin. Welcome to the show, Kevin. I really appreciate you you taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's an, it's an absolute pleasure. I heard you um, a few months back on the 10% Happier app speaking with Dan Harris and, and really love the conversation. I'd encourage listeners to, to check out that as well. And maybe we can touch on some of those uh, themes that were discussed and uh, continue the conversation. Uh, a standard kind of opening question that we asked, since this is In Search of Wisdom, um, it's a bit about what initially maybe led you down this, uh, this path to, to studying Buddhism, maybe a, a few decades ago now. Yeah. You know, there, it's one of those questions, you know, it's, it's like trying to unravel karma, all the intersecting elements and but I'll, I'll touch on a couple of the main ones. Um, first of all, I think I, I always had a a pull towards spirituality, and uh, you know, even I'm funny. My mother, my mother even would say that. Like after I started meditating, I taught her to meditate, and she and she had sort of seen me as this uh, sort sort of for her someone who was a, a spiritual. Uh, not guide, but sort of someone who, uh, ha, you know, represented something spiritual for her. And that's, that's really going back. I'm the, I'm the, her, her fifth and last child. So, uh, and, and then I will say that, you know, growing up in the sixties, a coming of age in the sixties, you know, the idea of spirituality versus, religion was very much in the air and as a musician you know uh you know i was a big beetle fan so they started meditating and it all seemed to be like very magical and and exotic so i kind of had this idea of spirituality as something yeah magical that was going to but but part of that was my feeling that I needed something magical to fix me. So besides having this spiritual urge, I also started suffering from depression very early in, you know, in my teenage years and then got, you know, really swept up in drugs and alcohol. 
so that I had these sort of two streams in my life. One was positive and one was, we could say, negative or destructive. But they all, they both pointed towards the same thing, actually, which was finding some kind of answer, some higher answer. And, and, um, so eventually, once I got it together, which took a long time in my late twenties, I started to meditate and I started with TM, Transcendental Meditation. And then, as often happened in my life in those days, there was a woman involved, <laughs> a woman who was into Buddhism. And at some point I thought, well, the way I'll fix our relationship <laughs> is I'll start doing th that meditation. So, so there's a lot of illogic, you know, and we could say accidents, uh, if you believe in such things. You know, but but as soon as I engaged in Buddhist teaching, as soon as I started to read about it and started to sit retreats, I felt like I had found my home. Really, uh, it it spoke to me on this very practical level, the practice of mindfulness and the the Dharma teachings of the Buddha were not magical and they were not esoteric or mystical. They were, they really spoke to my life, the impermanence and suffering and, and the problem with self, uh, which is, you know, a big problem. <laughs> but, um, so, so there was just this immediate kind of connection for me and, and, uh, it kind of paired up. So it, 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 it answered or spoke to both those streams because the practices of Buddhist meditation, you know, mindfulness and loving kindness, compassion practices really are healing and, and started me on this journey of healing from depression as well as addiction. And, it also spoke to this spiritual hunger, you know, this, that, that higher calling. So that's kind of the long and the short of it. What would you say that pull or that spiritual hunger that many people seem to, to get bitten, bitten with, if you will, what were you searching for? Was there anything that comes to mind that you were maybe searching for greater clarity around during that time? I don't think it was ever a clear thought or idea. It was more like a resonance where I would hear certain things and they would kind of speak to me. And and I'll say that early on, like in my late teenage years and early 20s, when I started to sort of be interested in these things, there was a lot of delusion. You know, at that point, it was like, you know, Edgar Casey. I don't know if you know who he is, but like in, uh, I w the other day I read something that mentioned him as a, f a spiritual fraud, uh, you know, maybe. And, and you know, uh, uh, Scientology and, and things that I, I view now as really not authentic paths. So there, so it was kind of there was this like 
blindness, you know, but but it was also, uh, you know, a significant part of it was a a rebellion. Uh, I was raised Catholic and and kind of very, you know, followed all of that until I was like fourteen or whatever, and and kind of the 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 movement away from established religions became this like willingness to try anything, you know, whether it's the Tao Te Ching or, you know, you're, you're sort of just uh, searching and what, you know, what is it? I mean, I, 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 you know, you can certainly talk about the human hunger for transcendence, the human desire for meaning and and i think also a wish to make sense of of our world and life because you know humans are the only living beings that know that they are going to die as far as we know right? and that fact i think has this huge impact on human behavior and human thinking and belief systems because it, virtually every religion a foundation principle is answering the question what happens when you die and just that the fact that they want to do that really speaks to something because obviously Nobody knows, you know, people claim to know, and the Buddha certainly claimed to know. And I, you know, I'm not enough of a Buddhist to believe that. Uh, I don't discount it, the possibility that the Buddha had some transcendent wisdom, that he had experienced things. And, and, and I know that there are living people today who say that they have experienced, you know, awareness of past lives and all that. You know, I'm not, I'm not convinced, but because I, because it's so clearly that wish to have an answer, uh, it kind of deludes people. You know, that it. it I can, I can take up your whole podcast on on a, a single question like this, Joshua. But, but one of the one of the things that you see when you watch your mind for a while, like I've been doing for 40 years, is that they're, one of the most powerful desires we have is the desire to know something. That, and it's, it's a response to a, one of the most powerful discomforts we have is not knowing. So this is why people make rash decisions, because they'd rather have an answer and a decision than say, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait, you know. But then on these bigger questions, oh my God, what's going to, I'm going to die? Like, what's going to happen then? I, I, it's not comfortable not knowing that. So people are willing to make up a story that answers that question so they can be, oh, okay, fine. I'm going to go to heaven if I'm good, so I'll be good, you know, or I'm going to be reborn and, you know, so I have to create good karma. Uh, or, you know, nothing, nothing, it's just going to be all over. That's fine. You know, I don't have to, as long as I know, like, I don't have to worry about just an answer, right? Any answer. Uh, that's, uh, 
I think when you ask that question of what what is the pull, I think that's I think that's maybe the the primal pull for spiritual search. Since we're on the topic of maybe this desire for certainty, how do you think about working with that? I mean, I think of, of Socrates coming to this realization that, you know, wisdom is around not knowing. And obviously that comes up in so many other traditions as well. How do we come to that realization maybe and in, in work with uh, uncertainty? Yeah. It's, I think it's essentially for, from a Buddhist standpoint, and certainly at least in terms of how I understand Buddhism and how I practice it, it comes down to kind of the, the key thing that we have to learn to do, which is to sit with our own discomfort. And, and so that applies to a whole wide range of experiences. So when we sit down to meditate, we are, it's almost inevitably going to be uncomfortable because the mind is busy, the body becomes uncomfortable, there, there are desires for things to happen. There's, all this stuff is going on, and we're, what we are learning to do is to let go moment by moment of the of the even the grasping for something that oh I, oh I really could use you know a cup of coffee right now no I'm just going to keep meditating or um, you know my knee hurts oh well I'm just going to sit with it you know and the, the, all the this ongoing practice of of being with craving and aversion and not acting on it and learning to have a what we call equanimity kind of an, a, a non-disturbed mind have the mind not be disturbed by these various pulls and so then that applies in the same way to this, these bigger questions, you know, of, of needing to know. And, and it's, the principle is that we come to see that these cravings, whether it's a craving for chocolate or a craving for wisdom, <laughs> that they all cause suffering. And that the way to and that suffering isn't to get the chocolate or get the answer, but it's to let go of the craving itself. And so that is the practice. That is the essence of Buddhist practice, is letting go of craving moment by moment. So I had this this moment a couple years ago where I was in a coffee shop in Oakland, and I looked at one of the baristas behind the counter and I thought is that a man or a woman and then I immediately thought I don't have to know and I just let it go <laughs> and that's one of those things it's like we get very uncomfortable with that question if we can't identify somebody's gender but it was like very freeing it's like oh 
it's really not my business to decide that. I don't have to know. Maybe that person doesn't identify as either. Uh, and But it just really was a moment that stuck with me about how there's this craving. We want to know, right? We want to have the answer. We're not comfortable with uncertainty. And so I want to impose my need on this person. Like, I'm going to go up to him and say, are you a boy or a girl? What are you? You know, and they're like, you know, why do you need to know? I'm like, oh. So thankfully, I didn't do that. But it was in my mind, you know, there was the impulse. So uh, it's a very simple example, but it's it's one that I think probably a lot of people can relate to, um, you know, that we, we run into that. And, and uh, but, it, but it was like, it was freeing. You know, it was like, ah, oh, great. I don't have to make this a problem. You know? So that's that's the practice. Do you think that might be the best that we can hope for is to notice, <laughs> to catch ourselves? Um, I, I laugh. I, I don't know. I've noticed I've been laughing a lot lately. I'm not sure if it's a sign of senility or what, but um, it, it's, it's, it's really a good question. Is the best we can hope for is to notice and let go, or is it possible for us to get to a place where the the craving doesn't even arise. Is that, is that the question? <laughs> it is. So, or may, I mean, I guess maybe we can limit that, that, you know, the, the number, but uh, it's, it seems like that's a real success of, of just noticing it and catching yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it does feel like a success if you're going to, you know, <clears throat> put it in those terms. It's not, not really, Right. You know, because if you turn it into a success, then it means you're also going to fail. And then you've got this, you know, uncomfortable, uh, you know, scorecard going on. But but this is actually, you know, a question about enlightenment. Uh, and it's actually something I've been re- writing about and thinking about lately. According to the Buddha, at a certain very advanced stage of awakening desires cease. And that's, that is kind of the ultimate um, goal and the ultimate, the end of the path essentially is when craving ceases. Uh, You know, and that is another one of those things that seems sort of so far off that it do, it's not that uh, doesn't seem accessible or maybe even helpful to think about it because it um, sets it up as, oh, I'm not there yet. And I'm so I have not succeeded. I'm not, you know, a, a good Buddhist or whatever. You know, you, you just get into all that stuff. Um, so, so we could say on that theoretical level, that's possible. What I think, and on the practical level, most of the time what we're doing is we're just noticing craving and then letting it go. But there are examples, and as a recovering alcoholic and addict, it's the example of the craving to drink being gone is a good one. And, and it is something which, which is true for me that I don't have that craving for drugs and alcohol anymore. And there was a time when it was, 
absolutely a persistent daily craving. Uh, and it didn't seem, and I didn't see any way to end it. You know, I, it didn't even occur to me that it could end. So, so that's uh, a kind of transformation and a kind of end of a certain kind of craving. And, and I think that many people probably have experiences like that. And we could just point to, I guess, you know, the, the, the things that we crave when we're children. <laughs> that as adults we're not particularly interested in you know um and and so we can see that uh, maybe craving uh certainly craving evolves along with our growth uh, you know certainly certainly you know in literal growth you know just growing into adults but also we see that there's a spiritual growth in which we become less interested and less triggered by and 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 just not interested at some point in in certain things that might have seemed really important so so i think it applies i guess what i'm saying is this uh, this idea of ending craving can apply sort of to individual things to get to a point where there's no craving at all is sort of hard to fathom and and then you get the then you get into this sort of academic question well if you have no craving are you going to eat you know and, uh, and it sort of then it becomes silly let me let me ask a, a question related to enlightenment i i, I guess in philosophical schools like ancient philosophy, this idea of, of the sage being so rare that maybe once every 500 years, you know, like the, the phoenix, a, a sage actually exists. Is, is there something similar in, in the Buddhist tradition of, of this idea of enlightenment being very, very rare or not so much? Not, not so much, really. Not, you know. I, I read a fair amount of the early Buddhist teachings in the Theravadan tradition, which is called the the Pali Canon, suttas of the Pali Canon, sort of the discourses. And uh, people are getting enlightened left and right in there. You know, uh, practically every sutta has somebody getting enlightened. Um. So a couple things to say about that. First of all, the 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 comparable thing to what you're describing of a of a rare appearance of a sage is the appearance of the appearance of the Buddha, and that's and the appearance of a Buddha is considered very more rare than five hundred years, more like five thousand years mm. or more. Uh, and so. Uh, that's but but a Buddha is is different from an enlightened person. You can be enlightened without being a Buddha. A Buddha is not just they're enlightened and they are a world teacher. Mm. And so the you know that's that's the brief definition of the sort of difference that that sets the Buddha apart. But one question that. I mean, there's a couple of questions that come up about why are so many people getting enlightened in the suttas and how come it doesn't seem like so many are getting enlightened today. And there's the argument that, well, being around the Buddha kind of, you know, made it 
a lot easier to get enlightened because we know what it's like to be around a really incredible teacher and how, uh, you know, much insight can sort of just arise from being with them and hearing them speak. There's also the question of whether, how do we define enlightenment? And maybe some of us are enlightened, but we just, by those standards of, a, but but we think that it's something different. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, that that seems like letting ourselves off the hook a little, you know, it's like getting a little handicap on the, I'm a golfer. So, you know, I think about the you know, playing from the different tees, you know, you seem to be drawn to the notion of, of love, including your, your enemies. I, I believe I heard that come up a bit in the, in a past interview that you did and also in the book, um, you know, could you say more on that? Is, is that a requirement, you know, for, for love, if you will? Well, in the traditional loving kindness meditation, that is a kind of key moment of practice. And it's in the, in the early text, they call it the enemy Sending loving kindness to the enemy. There is one commentary, uh, which is there's a commentary from f- five hundred, uh, common you know five, year five hundred common era, so a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, a classic Buddhist commentary called the Path of Purification, and that's where this structured form of loving kindness meditation came from. And what it suggests in there, though, is that rather than loving our enemies, we should just try to become neutral toward them. Because in the in that form that's taught there, we send love to people we care for. We send love to neutral people, people that we don't really have any positive or negative feelings about. And then we send love to the the difficult ones or the enemy. And it, but this idea of just trying to trying to neutralize our hatred that appeals to me because yeah I, I have a really hard time feeling love towards people that I really don't love. What I and ultimately to me it's not about a feeling; it's more about an attitude and sort of how do I view them. So that, like, one of the things that sometimes I get pushback from is billionaires suffer too. People are like, I don't care. They don't deserve it. Well, okay. But, you know, if I'm walking around with hatred for anybody, be it billionaires or politicians or my next door neighbor, I'm the one who's suffering. And this is the principle of loving kindness practice. It's not about making them feel okay, because I know that whether I love them or hate them, it's not going to affect how they feel. You know, if I get in their face and start yelling at them, that might affect them. But but generally, if I'm sitting here going, God damn, that person next door with their leaf blower, I hate them. They don't know. You know, they don't feel it. So, so what's really important about loving kindness practice isn't 
the other person. It's what am I creating within myself? And of course, that I mean, we forget that, and yet it's so obvious, right? Who is suffering when I am angry? I am suffering. So it's really about working with that and finding a way to just diffuse that anger. So when I'm when I'm frustrated with billionaires who don't pay taxes, I can remember like, you know, first of all, I'm just causing myself suffering. And why do I think they don't pay taxes? Because they're greedy. And greed is painful. They suffer too. <laughs> and, you know, if you're, a, in fact, I think billionaires probably suffer more than ordinary people, because to become a billionaire, you have to be so obsessed with money. And if you've ever been obsessed with money, you know that that's painful. So we can, this is the way that we kind of cultivate and, and change our attitude. And and as I say, it might you might not feel this blossoming love and affection for them, but you can kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, it's okay. I don't have to go there. Seems to be such an important point. How does this non ill will connect for you with things like letting go of resentment or vengeance or forgiveness, some sort of release of uh, maybe negative feelings towards this, this difficult person? Well, again, it, it comes down to mindfulness of my own experience, you know, moment by moment, you know, I'm sitting and I, something gets stirred up and I'm, and I'm not aware of it. You know, and all that agitation is arising. And then awareness arises, and it's like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. You know, this isn't helping me. Uh, well, let me just let it go. Yeah, and letting go or let be is another way of putting it. So in order to engage in this process, you first have to buy in to the understanding, basically, of the Four Noble Truths. That, and the, the key aspect of that that you have to buy into is the Second Noble Truth that says that grasping an aversion, any kind of you know, form of, of desire or hatred, or you know, the, either of those kind of sides of really of what are the same coin, that this feeling that things have to be different. I need things to be different from the way they are. I have to understand that that's the problem. And that takes some, well, it is an insight. It's a key insight because the way our minds work and the way we view the world typically when we don't have that insight is that we think that the problems in, in our life are external to us. And that if we can change those things, if I can change that annoying neighbor, you know, then I won't be disturbed anymore. That they are the problem. That my relationship or my kids or my boss or the president or the, you know, somebody out there is the problem. And as long as we believe that, we're never going to 
deal with the the reality of our of how our inner life, our mind, our thoughts, our beliefs, our feelings are the things that are causing us suffering. So we have to have that insight first before we're going to buy into it. Because if you walk up to say to somebody and say, you shouldn't be so angry at them, you're the one who's suffering. They're going to be like, no, that person's an asshole. And, that, you know, that's why I'm angry. It's like, okay, as long as you have that belief system, you're never going to be able to let go. And and this is, you know, one of the most profound and critical beliefs, spiritual beliefs there is. And it's certainly the foundation of Christianity as well. Love thy neighbor, you know, the golden rule. Uh, it's all about seeing that, you know, suffering, I mean, ultimately, it's about letting go of, of hatred so that we don't suffer. You know, the Buddha has the great image, a famous image of picking up a hot coal to throw at someone because we're angry with them. And we're the ones who get burned by that. It's such a really clear image that I think really speaks to a lot of people. Like, it's one of those images that can be just enough to get the insight. It's like, oh, yeah, right. Right. That's how it works. So, so we have to have, we have to start with insight, but insight doesn't come with just words. You know, someone can tell you about what's happening until you experience it yourself. You don't fully understand it and you, and you don't, you're not likely to fully embrace it. So that's why meditation, I think, is so important and watching your own inner experience moment by moment and seeing how thoughts of anger or thoughts of craving cause discomfort in the body, cause emotional agitation, and that you're sitting there and there's nobody there. There's nothing happening. You're sitting there alone with your own thoughts and you're creating your own pain. And if you watch that and see that, honestly, you can't help but understand that and have that insight into how suffering is created. I wanted to talk about meditation a bit and something that you said in, in, the, uh, in the conversation with Dan Harris of your meditation practice has devolved in a way, and you used <laughs> the phrase of, of sitting quietly, which I, I absolutely love. Sometimes when uh, I think people that are not familiar with meditation, they think of meditation and it seems like a, a big, intimidating, maybe mountain to climb yeah. versus uh, of just sitting quietly. I think of the Blaise Pascal quote of, um, you know, humanity's inability to sit quietly kind of being the the root of all all problems to paraphrase but could you talk yeah. more about this idea yeah it's when we when we start to meditate and get put in this situation of doing nothing most of us really feel that we need something to do. And so thus come the forms of meditation. 
And so you get taught to feel your breath. And when the mind wanders, to let the thought go and come back to the breath. And then there are many elaborations on that where you can, when your mind wanders, make a mental note of where your mind went. Or count your breaths. Or with the loving kindness practice, visualize people and say phrases in your mind to them. Words of loving kindness. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And then you have practices like mantra or visualization. On and on, right? There are dozens and hundreds and maybe 108 meditation practices, you know. Uh, I've come to see them as just things to keep you busy while you're sitting still, which is really the work. Just sitting quietly, allowing the mind to settle. I think there's a there's a great wish when you when you start to meditate to find a way to control your mind. And all these forms kind of promise that. And they can be useful, absolutely, and they can help you quiet your mind. But ultimately particularly over the long haul, it's the the repeated showing up. It's the repetition of practice of sitting still for periods of time, and ideally for long periods of time, like going on silent retreats and sitting over and over. That's what I think does the the real work of, of stilling the mind, opening the mind, opening us to mindfulness, to, to insight. Uh, I do think that what's important in form is paying attention and having, having a, a, a sort of set of guidelines for how to understand your experience. And that's what the Buddha really offers. The, the Four Noble Truths, sort of notice that there is suffering, notice how it rises, notice how it ends. You know, that's the first three Noble Truths. And then there is this path. So, so no, sort of having that context uh, for understanding your experience is really important. But the meditation itself, I think, is mostly the stillness and the silence um, and yeah, uh, Dan kind of pushed back on that, Dan Harris, and and people have pushed back on that. And I might be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I love it. And I'm really appreciative of your time. And I want to respect your time here, Kevin. Um, I just have one kind of standard quick wrap up question that we ask most guests. And maybe we've talked a little bit about it throughout the conversation. But the question is, how do you think about or define wisdom in, in daily life today? I thought you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was putting on my socks this morning, I asked myself how I would answer it. Um, I thought, well, with the name of the podcast, I think he's going to ask me what I think wisdom is. <laughs> you know, and, and I have to really fall back again on Buddhist teachings and that the traditional there are three key insights 
that are seen as sort of uh, primary and 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 really overarching elements of Buddhist wisdom. They're the insight into impermanence, the insight into suffering, and the insight into not self. And some of these, uh, the, like the insight into impermanence, is the is very simple and a co- common wisdom. Everything changes. Everybody knows that. The idea that self is a creation <laughs> or a construction is like way far from that in terms of common wisdom or, you know, and that's one that people struggle with a lot. Um, but, and and the the question around suffering, the kind of universality of suffering is also one that people can resist, but but if it's put in the you know the right terms i think it's it's understood when we say that there there's this unsatisfactory nature to life and it's because everything is impermanent and that then the question around self i think becomes the simpler way to get at it is to realize how self-centeredness and selfishness uh, cause suffering, you know, and and to see that who we think we are is something that changes over time. So there is not some stable version of yourself. All you have to do is look at a picture of yourself as a child and realize, well, that's not me. And and so then the question becomes, how do we create this? And that's, you know, a whole other series of podcasts. <laughs> but um, the, in terms of that question of how we apply that in our daily lives, which I think is what you're asking, there, these three insights actually are really, really helpful to keep in mind. So remembering, oh, this is impermanent. It's going to change. We know, like, that's a very freeing thing. Like, okay, I'm going to get through this. I've got a cold, but I'll be okay by next week. And, you know, all the things that we kind of are able to just remember, okay, it's impermanent. Seeing suffering is more about, oh, am I creating suffering for myself right now? Oh, how am I doing that? So remembering that I, that, that if I am uncomfortable, it's usually because I'm kind of creating it with my own mind. So that's very helpful. And then around self, seeing how like, oh, like I'm really upset because that person said something to me that affected my ego. Like, ah, oh, you know, don't take it personally. That's the the shorthand for it. Like, just don't take it personally. And we see like, oh yeah, when I if I don't take it personally, I I don't, I get rid of that problem, but I also have an opportunity to, to work with people and to solve things and to get through things much easier. If I'm stuck and it's all about me, it, it, that creates a lot more, a lot of problems. When it's not about me, when I can say, as I just did to you a few moments ago, oh, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I've got this opinion 
you know, but that's really about self, right? It's like uh, Kevin Griffin, you know, uh, author, Buddhist teacher. He's so wise. And, uh, you know, I, I just said this, and this is the way it is. Well, but uh, there's new evidence that shows that you're wrong. Oh, shit. Now what do I do? You know, um, you just destroyed me live on your podcast. No, it's like, uh, yeah, I could be wrong. I don't. And, and so, so we can see that actually humility is tied in with attachment to self. And, and yeah, that's, it's a well-known quality that's very freeing is humility. So all of these elements, these, you know, you know, impermanence, suffering, not self, are very practical, useful, and, and the ideas and insights that, that I absolutely carry with me every day and have to keep referring to and reminding myself because, of course, the tendency is to get caught in the opposite. Well, I love it. That's a great way to wrap up. Where do you point people interested in, in learning more about you, Kevin? Um, KevinGriffin.net is my website. Um, and I've been uh, offering some Zoom classes Tuesday mornings and Friday evenings since March of 2020. <laughs> and uh, so those, there's the link for that, the information on that on my website. And uh, yeah, and all my books. And I have lots of audio and video on there of those classes. As Yeah, so KevinGriffin.net, easy. Well, great. Kevin Griffin, thank you for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Joshua. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.